welcome to our second episode of In the Village A Prisoner Introcast. This week we'll be doing episode 2, Dance of the Dead, but before we get started with that, my name is Shane, and you joined as always is my good friend Bob. Hello. I'm Aaron. Salutations. And unfortunately, our other host, uh, John, cannot be with us this week because his motherboard has died. But however, we do have a guest host, and his name is Harold. Hi, Harold. Hi, how are you? We're doing well, we're doing well. Glad you can join us on this episode. Thanks. Um, before we get started, is there anything you'd like to plug? No, no. Nope? Okay. Brilliant. Um, okay, so the TV war synopsis for this particular episode is Death looks amid a gantry of a... Co- of a carnival and the prisoner is put on trial and when he makes an audacious bid to foil his captors. So, uh, we start the episode and we get the opening sequence. A shorter ep- opening sequence uh, this week, which I don't really, not really a spoiler, that is going to be the standard opening sequence for most of I would like to point out yeah. that I was very confused at that opening sequence for a minute because I thought either A, I was watching the same episode, yeah. or B, they completely cut something out because I did not recognize that number two in the opening sequence. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, that's not the same number two that we ended with on episode two. Well, you've yeah. seen three number twos so far in two episodes. So. Yes. And they're, they're not really good at explaining why they make the changes. Because clearly one failed and we must replace it. I don't know. That's my guess. Yes. Uh, she wasn't a original number two, actually. Yeah, she, she was an interesting uh, person. She certainly was. Yeah, she, 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 she was very, uh, always seemed very amused by what was going on. She kind of reminded me of Q from Star Trek a little bit. Or maybe it was just the, the court scene later on that definitely reminded me of it. Uh, as I said, she wasn't the, she wasn't actually the original number two for the particular episode. Kevin Howard was originally cast as number two, with the character of at the time, but dropped out shortly before shooting began because allegedly he had a clause in his contract saying he would not work if England were playing cricket at Lords. <laughs> That's a very that 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 okay. That goes on the top of interesting clauses I've heard of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wish they weren't. Oh, even better. Wait, what? Hmm. So, uh, they made the changes of, from Opa at the time to Peter Pan. And actually, she chose to be Peter Pan, apparently. She was she was a perfect Peter Pan. She real, really uh, looked like uh, Peter Pan. Just the uh, the hairstyle, the, the, the looks. Even, even her name. Her, her name was uh, Mary Morris, I think, which... Uh, yeah. You know, is reminiscent of Mary Martin, who was the most famous Peter Pan of the, of the time. Yep. Yeah. So we um, open, and they're doing tests on number six with the Dutton, trying to get number six to talk. Yeah, I like that you see the sinister side of the village right off. You know, because in, in other areas, like with Peter Pan, you see kind of the whimsy and the... the kind of happy-go-lucky carnival atmosphere, but, you know, it reminds you that there's something really dark underneath. Definitely. And, and, and there's also conflicts between the different people who are in charge. Mm-hmm. I, thought, I thought it seemed like a really big jump, but I guess if this is the order we've chosen, it works. Because 
in in the way I'm following this, this has been two days, maybe a week tops. It seems somebody wants to jump the gun real quick and get in whatever they want out of number number six real quick. Well, he was very eager that uh, scientist. In fact, yeah, uh, num- number two forty. Later, yeah, yeah. Uh, two later says he, he's pretty eager, but yeah, he he can't wait to uh, to jump in and and use all of his uh, techniques that he seems pretty proud of. Definitely, and uh, number two stops the experiment, um, saying that he, she's got a he he being number six has got a future in the village. Number six wakes up the following day, not realizing anything's happened, and goes to the window. <coughs> And opens his doors, and he just to make sure he's still in the village. Well, you know, going back for a second, it's kind of interesting how uh, even with that uh, you know, brain uh, wave uh, testing device or whatever they had, uh, that that six still did not crack. Uh, he recognized that something was wrong, even in his unconscious state. Yeah, even though it was Dutton talking to him. Right, he he has it ingrained not to reveal any secrets. Two episodes in, and for a place that uses num- only wants to use numbers, we've got two characters who are using their real names. We had Cobb last week and Dutton this week. Right. I thought that that was a sign that this is a very early episode, because as they say in the courtroom trial, we don't use names here. It, it seemed like the fact that Dutton had uh, three names that they constantly repeated his, his entire name that, that they were trying to emphasize at the point that there was something unusual about his name or the fact that they were using his name. All right, now it just seems to be anybody that seems to have known Six before the village, they want to use their name. I guess possibly is I don't know, something to get through to Six. Though that hasn't seemed to work so far. Possibly. He gets a visit by the maid and he actually says being number six, he actually says, I'm new here, which places it very, very early on. Right. Yeah, when I, when I, uh, I brought up on Facebook uh, when I first was watching this episode because, as I mentioned, uh, on Crackle, at least, this was listed as the eighth episode. Yeah. And I was thrown off a little bit when the, when the episode began because there was that opening scene where uh, Six is, is running off to the beach and he's confronted by Rover and there's the voiceover with uh, two, um, and it wasn't until I watched it again that I realized that was happening in, in live time, and she was watching him on the screen. At first, I thought maybe this was some sort of like uh, montage of scenes from an earlier episode. What wonderful things they can do in, in the 1960s in the village! Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got, an, I've actually um, got a note on Volvo, which I didn't mention last time around, but we'll get to that when he makes it, when he makes his appearance. Yeah, it makes sense that you would think that, Harold, because you wouldn't know that there was a new number two going into the episode. I get the sense that we'll be seeing a lot of number twos. Uh, yes, <laughs> I'm guessing that too at this point, considering we've already seen three. <laughs> yeah. But the question is, will we ever see who number one is? Probably not. <laughs> Maybe it's that teletype machine. Well. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All we know so far is that number one is very impatient. Yeah. Then we go t- and we go out, we go outside, and number two is trying to convince num- number six to actually have fun at the carnival that's coming up. 
that, that I don't I don't know how that's really working because everyone seems so glum even at the parade. <laughs> oh, actually, I've I've actually missed something. Actually, I don't I'm not sh- I don't know whether I'm assuming this is the continuity cock up, um, or something. I don't I honestly don't think it actually means anything. But the postman had the British Royal Mail insignia on his hat. Hmm. Did he? I was wondering what that... The hat had to have some kind of significance, but I didn't recognize it because yeah. not, I'm, I'm not from the UK. Yeah. I, I don't think that's spoilery when I say I think it's just something... Probably the prop they had on hand. Exactly. Exactly. So, as I said, number six wants... Uh, number two wants number six to have fun and tries to pick him out a date by some three lovely young ladies. And number six doesn't want that. He wants the one that's sitting on her own, his observer. And we have, we have, a, we have a quite a classic uh, conversation between number six and number two, trying to, com- number two trying to convince him otherwise and says, um, I'm independent, don't forget. And his observer disappears, and number six follows him to the town hall, and the town hall doesn't let him in, and some sort of force field in place. And I'm assuming, even though we don't get any, we don't get any evidence of the contrary, the big control room that we see, that we saw in the previous episode, is in, is in the town hall. Yeah, I would imagine that's the case, yeah. Uh, that would That would make the most sense, you know, particularly since the guy... Uh, what I didn't catch his number. Uh, when six tries to go in, you know, it tells him it's fussy about who it lets it go in. So I guess you know anybody who's actually in, you know, the inner circle there is the ones that have the access to the town hall, which would then make sense that the observatory room and all the other behind-the-scenes stuff would definitely be in that building. Well, as, as I understood, maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed like the uh, the uh, carnival and cabaret occurred at the town hall. Uh, he was allowed in there. So then when he, he got uh, into the back rooms uh, at the end uh, where we had the teletype machine and the different people in the lab coats, that was all part of uh, the town hall. Am I, am I right or am I wrong? No, that, that, yeah, that was, that was definitely there. Yeah. yeah. I guess they, they can control when that, when that thing goes on and off or when they, or is, you know, I'm going to throw an IT reference. We give you temporary access privileges now. <laughs> yeah, and they were also controlling access to specific rooms within it because number two was telling him they'll never see you in here while they were just out in the hallway beyond. Or he couldn't get into the certain rooms because they were locked or, you know, yeah, whatever they may have had to keep them from opening, except for the one which they probably wanted him to go into, but he doesn't seem to think that. And then number and it cuts to night, and number six escapes. He first drives the door, which is locked, and he jumps out of the balcony onto the beach, and runs towards the shore, or to, runs towards the sea rather. And we see Rover just bouncing along on the surf, um, just doing nothing. Going to the note that I have on Rover, that was actually Rover Mark Two. What happened to Mark One? Mark One. Uh, Mark One was delivered on location, and basically, it was a go kart with a cake-like outer shell with a flashing blue light on top, with a small hole in its side to let the driver see where it was going. Um, Bruni 
um, Bilney uh, Walton, the production manager, decided to have a go. So he got into the go kart, had the thing put on top of his on top of his head, and he went down, and he would. It was all over the road. He couldn't see where he was going. The hole was too small. So I took the, the the lid off, and it was coughing and spluttering because all the exhaust fumes was filling up the inside oh. of the rover. This sounds like a wonderful design flaw. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it was, so was completely scrapped. Uh, there was an apocryphal story saying that it was actually put into water and it sunk. <laughs> However, that is com- completely untrue because it was never brought into water. It was just completely scrapped. So Bernie and Petra Magoon were having drinks one night on the location wondering, what are we going to do? We've got this shooting schedule. What are we going to do? Then he looked up and saw, and saw some weather balloons from a weather station just down the coast. And they just looked at each other and said, we've got an idea here. They got hundreds and hundreds of balloons in, and just to have a look at Rover, and how it worked was having the right amount of oxygen and helium. Too much oxygen meant the balloon would go all floppy, and too much helium meant the balloon would actually rise up. And I said to you uh, last time around, it was controlled on a string, and if you look very, very closely, you can actually see the string on this beach scene. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm not paying close enough attention. I I didn't see it. You can you can actually see uh, on the actual big on the on rover, it's being taut at one end. Oh, that yeah yeah. So so it's not a, so it's not a complete oval shape, and that's what was being pulled along by fishing wire. So he just collapses and finds a radio. I think that was actually a happy decision because Rover is so much more an iconic image of the show than whatever that other contraption would have been. Definitely. Definitely. And, and my impression was kind of, oh my God, this fails. We have like no money left in the prop budget. What can we do? Yes. I know a balloon. <laughs> yes. There's actually some footage yep. um, of Rover and it yeah. looks absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> It's totally ridiculous. Plus, 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 you can't have the the wonderful insult to injury bouncing of a giant ball on top of uh, number six. Yeah, that's just funny to watch every time I see it. <laughs> Can we go back for a moment though? Because I, I wanted to um, please ask uh, you know what anyone thought about the fact that uh, there's there's a lot to be made about the fact that uh, six is um, he makes a comment that. Uh, he just goes to sleep at night, he, or uh, he's never seen seen the night. He just goes to sleep, and then there's a, a nurse who's giving him uh, some sort of tea or or a maid that he he doesn't drink. And then there's that light that tries to put him to sleep. Uh, his door is locked, uh, so he escapes out the window. And uh, uh, later on, though, the, when he comes back the next day, the maid is is saying, uh, "You act as if uh, the doors are locked." Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so what is the going on? Yeah, what, I mean, he had six had speculated that that's when they bring in the ice cream and the uh, you know uh, the other things into the village at night, and that's why they didn't want him uh, walking around at night. Uh, so I don't know if does anyone have any thoughts uh, if he's right or what's going on at night. Uh, I do. I do have an answer to that actually. 
I do have an answer to that, but that could that's going to be a bit spoilery. Yeah, I was going to say you have an answer that you can say. Yeah. <laughs> no, I haven't. I've got an answer I can say. I've got that. It it will be revealed. Okay. Down the road. Uh, obviously, it seemed pretty important for them to uh, get him to sleep. Uh, you know, so I, I was just curious. <laughs> I like that he asked number two how he slept. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well it's kind of creepy, too, the way that she has a camera even uh, while he's shaving. Yes. Uh, <laughs> when I saw that, I was curious how long electric shavers had been around, but it was actually decades before that. I wonder if that's a choice that uh, he, he just uses an electric shaver or they don't want to uh, to have a razor blade available for him that yeah, they I, use I, as a weapon or for a suicide. Yeah, I don't think they'd give him a razor blade, certainly. Yeah. And he was not quite as nasty to the maid this time. Yeah, she wasn't. The absolutely stunning maid, yes. in, in my opinion. Yeah. Which is still... Nice. Which he still has no interest in. So. Yes, yeah, so I, I don't understand why. The, I guess they're still they're still going to attempt everything, but I I would think they would they would figure by now trying trying to trying to go with the sex appeal route just isn't going to work. Yeah, I have to say it would have worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, back to the episode. Um. He finds a body on he finds a body on the beach. Um, it, this was actually the last thing filmed on location for this episode, hmm. and it, the corpse was actually made uh, so it was actually the uh, played as it were by props man Roy Cannon, huh. and the photograph was taken some days previously. Uh, with with uh, an assistant accountant, Jill Hensley, by the Piazza Fountain. Um, but, yeah. For a wallet that has just been in the sea for Lord knows how long, that yeah. photo looked way too in good condition. Mm. Yeah. I mean, they did a good job making the wallet look really wet, but the photograph looks like they kind of just stuffed it in last minute and said, all right, shoot the scene now. Uh-huh. And he also finds a radio as well. And then we cut to um, the town crier saying that the carnival is underway. And everybody seems so happy about that. Yeah, exactly. Stoic looks on everyone's faces and, you know, they couldn't be happier, could they? (laughs) What a a sad parade. Yeah. (laughs) And the one thing we haven't actually mentioned is the black cat. Yeah, that's one of friend. the that's one of the creepiest things in this episode. Is that even the pets are working for the village. <laughs> mm. You can never trust a cat, though. You can never trust them anyway. <laughs> mm. And then he goes back to his um, abode, and he gets his costume. Which happens to be his own suit. Question: In, uh, in last time's episode, he, he was told his suit was burned. So how can it be his suit again? Well, is it his suit or is it a tuxedo? He says it's his suit. Maybe it's a, it's another suit though, because it's a, it was a tuxedo at the uh, carnival. Or he wasn't wearing a tuxedo in the first episode, was he? Is this, is this another uh, you know article of clothing that they've taken from his home? Possibly. Just giving it back to him, I suppose. 
or they can just lie about it being burned. I mean, it's it's not out of the question they'd lie to him. No, sure. that's true. That's true. Uh, burned was just a way of saying you're not getting it back. Mm. That's true. And then he listens to the radio being spied on by number two and the doctor. Okay, well, I guess I guess I'm the newbie. I'm asking the questions, but uh, yeah, take it, please. <laughs> but any other Anyone have any thoughts about who who is making this broadcast and who is who's the intended audience? That will actually come up in the feedback. Yeah, okay. there is an answer to that. Yeah, there is. No, I always I just assumed it was them messing with him. As as per, I've just I've just lumped it up with they're constantly messing with him. So I figured it was them. Well, it was interesting because both the Observer and two later on during the trial. Uh, you know, state that it's against the rules for him to listen to any such broadcast. So then the question becomes, who's listening to to this broadcast? I mean, they're, they're not supposed to be having radios either, um, you know, except for the one that I guess is provided to them in their homes. Yeah, <laughs> the approved one. But so so who's who's it for, and what, what was that message about? It was a rather uh, uh, curious uh, and obscure message. Yeah, they also asked the observer, you know who said that she heard him listening to the radio. Well, what was he listening to? And she got it right. She said, we're not supposed to listen. Yeah, it, it was uh, certainly uh, intriguing what that was about. Uh, I don't know. If the, I guess we'll see. I'll listen to feedback <laughs> at the end here. We'll see if there's an answer for us or, or is this going to come back uh, in, in a future uh, episode. But that was, uh, it, it was also, you know, just very, uh, uh, unclear what what was being talked about. Uh, if this was a message about the carnival itself, or if this had anything, you know, if this was something from outside the island. Well, how they're using it is one thing, but they'll say what the message originally was and how it's being used in this instance. Okay. And then we we um, his observer loses number six because number six is in the cave writing, um, put a letter out to try to convince, or to try and tell everybody that, hi, I'm here, I've been abducted, help. And then, and I missed a scene out, actually, to be honest with you, we missed the classic scene of number six talking to an observer and just trying to, con- his observer trying to convince number six that it's all right in the village. Yes, they have very different interpretations of what's going on. Yeah. Well, she, she, I guess we all know how long she's been in the village, if she's grown up in this village, or if she's been uh, brought there. Certainly she, she believes in uh, uh, obeying the rules, mm-hmm. um, and, and that, that seems paramount to her, and is, is not too willing to, uh, to see any other way around that, whether it's through, through fear or just that's the way she... Uh, yeah, she uh, believes things should be done. Mm. But yeah, so with them, then we cut to the scene I was talking about about the um, observer losing number six. Because <coughs> number six is in the cave, dumps the body into the sea, and he's seen by Dutton. And Dutton seems to be on the verge of losing it all in his mind. Dutton's. Um, Mind seems to be completely going. It, the um, techniques that the village have been using on Dutton seems to be working. Well, what, what was interesting to me, and this follows up on last week's podcast, 
mm-hmm. uh, where you had that discussion about who was running the village and whether it's uh, you know an arm of Six's agency or from some some other country or or what what is it uh, or some some other entity altogether because it doesn't seem based upon this piece of evidence that it would be from Six's own agency uh, just trying you know. Uh, uh, because they they apparently interrogate Dudden and uh, they're trying to find things out and they're not satisfied with what he has to say. Um, so it, w- it would seem to be there would have to be some sort of outside force. It's it's not just a matter of like uh, Six's own agency trying to see if he would crack or reveal a secret or if he's working on on another side. They're actually trying to get specific intelligence from Dudden. Then we cut. To outside, and we've cut um, to the glorious sunset scene. It's certainly How... was dramatic, uh, occurring out on the beach, mm. as it did. Yeah, with the lighting. Yeah, <laughs> um, but it was actually filmed there because of the beautiful sunset. Uh, however, the sunset, the scene took longer than the sun. Scenes took longer than the sunset, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So at the end, if you use lamps, because the sun has gone too, down too far, um, but they were so far away from each other, they had to actually shout at each other, Ed said Mary, uh, Ed, uh, said Mary Morris. Um, so it was actually able to convince him to join everybody. And we, we see the inside... And that big long, well, obviously the center set was obviously the control room and number two's plates all, um, you know, just redressed. However, that corridor leading down to that was actually up, um, adapted for sequences shot for the, for the movie, for the James Bond movie, Casino Royale, which was shot at MGM earlier in 1966. So we... So, trying to convince uh, number six to dance, and there's no dancing going on. Just number six, just wonk, having a wander around. <coughs> so number six wanders off, and he somehow successfully convinces the other person that he is a village technician by the old disguise of a white coat and glasses. It always seems to work. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And he gets handed a note saying that Dutton is going to be killed on orders of the village. He sure doesn't seem to do anything to help Dutton in this no. case, does he? <laughs> no. He, want, he wanders around, and he seems to find the village morgue. Everything is a filing cabinet. Yes. And he finds that the person that you put into the sea earlier on is actually back in the village, in the filing cabinet, or in the morgue, I should say. And number six tells no, number two tells number six that he that he is going to be made up to the, like number six and pushed back into sea. So everybody thinks that he's been killed and he is dead. Then we get the courtroom scene, and his heinous crime is of carrying a radio. And after a bit of a kangaroo court, he is sent- uh, sentenced to death. 
It had a real uh, kind of surreal uh, Alice in Wonderland uh, quality to it. Mm. Yeah, it seems a bit much for carrying a radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not just the radio. It's all the other things he's apparently been doing. You know, all the other attempts he's made as well. Yeah. Well, those are the specific charges. It's, the, the lawyer in me wonders how come no one brought up the fact that he uh, he just picked it up. He didn't he didn't attempt uh, to uh, to get a radio for any nefarious purpose, as, as the uh, the observer slash prosecutor kind of implies that he must have had to have uh, intended to get uh, a radio, and he just uh, lets that one go, and um, then his defense. I, uh, too, is merely just he's new to the island and give him a, give him another shot. Yeah. And he, number six calls the character witness, Dutton. But Dutton, at this particular point, is completely and utterly broken. He is a complete vegetable. Yeah, it doesn't make a very good character witness when he can't say a word. Yeah. I like they had a little rover balloon with him. <laughs> he got the wave. <laughs> <coughs> So he's been he's been found guilty, and he's gonna been sent um, to death, and he runs off with everybody chasing him, but he successfully escapes by going down the hatch, where everybody runs on top. Well, they were all very nice and kind to give him a, that head start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <coughs> So does anyone think that he was intentionally leading them to to that morgue uh, room, or that was just a happy uh, coincidence? He knew knew that was one way he could go. I feel like that was the only only door he pretty much figured would be unlocked at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was interesting though that he goes into that uh, morgue room. He goes downstairs, you know, uh, through the uh, hatch in the floor. Uh, he wanders around downstairs, and then when he comes out, he's back on the same floor. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. We never see him going, heading back up. That's the one bit I thought when, yeah, he goes back upstairs. Yeah. When when he Does when he's in the under, yeah, there's there's a little okay. bit where he wanders up a set of stairs. Okay, I must have missed that. And then he he wanders into this gorgeous room, and it looks like almost number one's office. Because much earlier in the episode we saw. Number two going into the office, wanting to file a report, and it's not. It's a teleprinter. So he rips out all the wires, which causes it to stop, and he is interrupted by number two. And his observer, so number two, wash, uh, shoes his observer away, and we hit the we hit the end of the story. Except number two says he is already dead. And magically, with all the wires out, the printer works again. There's been a lot of uh, surreal elements in, in these two episodes that we've uh, seen. Mm. And uh, so we were talk- you were talking about theories in the last podcast. And mm. one theory that at least went through my mind is that he's not alive, um, based upon all these kind of uh, supernatural-type things that happened, whether it was uh, in the first episode where... As soon as he hangs up that phone, the taxi's right behind him. Uh, you know, there's just so many different uh, odd, odd things that happen. But then again, on the other hand, um, there's been some signs that they don't want him to, like they didn't want him to jump uh, when he was up on that uh, uh, hilltop overlook with the radio. Um, 
uh, you know, there was a, the message when I woke up that said um, life for the living. Mm. So, so there's some contradictory evidence to that theory, but it was something yeah. that crossed my mind. Mm. Talking of not being alive, and this is this kind of this is a, a bit of a spoiler for Lost, but uh, the smoke monster in Lost was a direct homage to Rover. Really? Mm. Yeah, uh, Harold's comments about you know, possibly not being alive or whatever. A lot of the stuff on this now reminds me of Lost, you know, which I obviously hadn't seen at the time this aired. Mm. Yeah. Um, boy, did this episode have problems after it finished uh, shooting. It was originally given to Jeff Foote to assemble. The editor found the instrument went uh, way short and it was planned to shoot some extra material alongside subsequent episodes. In particular, there seemed to be insufficient coverage of the latest scenes to make a coherent story. Unhappy with Jeff Furt's first edict of Dance of the Dead, Patrick McGowan ordered the episode to be shelved, and this system was effectively abandoned until production had concluded in April 1967. By this time, one of the other editors, John R. Smith, was running short of work and had heard about Dance of the Dead, and he decided to have a look at the material, and catching McGowan on a responsive day, suggested that the episode looked good, and see if you could take on the challenge of reassembling it. So, after yeah, so it had a um, bit of a problem post-production-wise. Hmm. I, I just don't have enough experience with the prisoner to know how the other episodes are, but it, it certainly compared to your typical episode of television, it's it's a uh, it's a dense episode. It's not, you know, I, I've watched it now three times, and each time I'm picking up uh, different things. Three times in like the last four days. <laughs> mm. uh, so I feel like I could keep on watching and, and, and getting more out of it. Has anybody got any other notes? Um, I, just, just uh, these are my impressions of these two episodes. Is, is that mm-hmm. obviously it's uh, something of its time, but it really has that kind of uh, bad LSD trip type yeah. of vibe to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> it reminded me a little bit too of like uh, Peter Max, uh, the '60s artist, and just, just that whole that sense of certainly the, the bizarre and surreal and the, the umbrellas and. And, and the uh, the outfits of the villagers and uh, just just uh, definitely bad trip vibe is coming off of that this whole show. Well, it was made in, in the uh, mid to late sixties, so you know the LSD was going around at that particular point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, do you want to say anything or? Uh, uh, just kind of a notice, and I didn't know if if this will actually mean anything later. Please um, take it. But for for uh, I always the first immediate thing I noticed about. Six's new observer, 240, was the fact that her thing wasn't white like everybody else's. It was actually black. Yeah. And it was the first one that I've I've noticed that was a different color besides white. Yeah. And I'm and I'm curious to see if that's gonna show up later, if there's gonna be more people with black uh number tags, or if she's just ended up being the only one and if there was a point to that or not. Yeah. Um there isn't an answer to that at all. Completely. There are theories and I have and I have got a particular theory which will we which will we which we will be getting on to in a later episode if somebody reminds me of that. 
Um, but there isn't a particular particular answer to that particular thing. Yeah, I have a uh, a podcaster friend of mine told me that his father had worked on the prisoner in the props department, and he said that uh, you know McGowan's drug of choice at the time was drinking; that he was drinking quite heavily, like you know a bottle a day or so. Which to me makes his comment at the carnival that I rarely drink kind of ironic. <laughs> and I also like the, to me, the creepiest things in the episode were that, you know, they were going to frame him as being dead to the outside world and that the cat was in on it. I mean, this is really kind of a sinister operation. Definitely. I would really like to know the uh, background of all the villagers uh, and, you know, how it came to be that they're, you know, marching around and uh, for these parades and for the uh, the ordered merriment <laughs> that they must partake in. Oh, no, no, no. They have they have they have a choice because they're they're a democracy. So feel free. Yes, feel free. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But we know that there are poles and checks in the village by, by what um, the taxi driver said in the previous and last week's episode. Yeah, one thing I didn't like was number two's comment that well, something like we are democratic in certain respects. I didn't like her kind of backing off that so early on. I, I like you know maintaining the facade. Mm. Yeah. Have anybody got any other notes before we move on? Well, you know, if a democ- if everyone thinks the same. Mm-hmm. Then democracy can be a lot like a tyranny. So that's true. That's very, that's very very true. So what do you mean? We're talking about democracy here. Um, you know, they say they're democratically elected. Do you think they are? Perhaps in a way. <laughs> you know, there, there there used to be uh, elections in the Soviet Union, right? And Communist Party would get ninety nine percent of the vote each time. They're democratically elected, but somebody has 51% of the vote. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Um, well, we're going to quickly break for this lovely ad. But uh, we'll be back right after this. All right. Uh, epic promo. Take one. In a land before time. We're in a radio station. In a studio that came before vinyl. We didn't come before vinyl. We started with it. From a time that came before radio was epic. Just read the line. One man decided to change history. Nope. Four men decided to change history. We're not changing history. Make history. We're not making history. Recite history. Oh, God. Please just read the line right there in front of you. But the show is called Epic. All you have to say is listen to Epic on CHSR 97.9 FM or subscribe at geeklu.com. That's G E K L O dot com slash Epic. Making thunderous echoes across the waves. That's it. I'm done. I can't work with you. Thunderous this echoes. A solemn walk off to the distance into the sunset. Kitty sprinkles. And we're back. Hopefully everyone enjoyed that ad. But, um, so next thing on our list. Uh, is ratings. Aaron, you want to go first? Uh, hmm. You went first last time. It's going to be, it's going to turn into a tradition. It, 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 it's going to be the thing now. Uh, <laughs> hmm. We still basing this off 10? Yep. I give this one, I give, I give it about eight radios. We're going to go with radios this time because this okay. is what we found today. I give it, unless we want to stick with the rover thing, then I still give it the eight rovers. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, I definitely, I definitely enjoyed this one a uh, little bit more than the last one after my initial confusion with the intro. Uh, okay. Probably because I, I now kind of have an idea of what to expect. Um, the whole kind of chess game is definitely going on constantly now. Um, and the for, when I got to the near la- the later parts of the episode, the the court scene definitely reminded me of kind of a. a a court trial that Q would have in Star Trek because I'm a, kind of a big Star Trek fan, and you know, so, kind of the the metaphor they pulled with putting Dutton in the fool's outfit as a witness for Number Six was mm. that that definitely kind of kind of gave me a wonderful little chuckle towards the end. Cool. I would. Uh, well, I, I agree with Aaron in that uh, I really like the uh, the back and forth chess match between two and six, and. Uh, she, uh, two was particularly uh, uh, fun this time. She was uh, really enjoyed uh, the game of wits with six and trying to uh, turn him in her own way. Uh, and I enjoyed her in the uh, Peter Pan outfit, which I thought was uh, perfect for her. Um, and I just like the overall just uh, surreal, uh, absurd uh, uh, court scene. The uh, uh, that, that was just uh, had such a sour uh, acid trip type of feel to it. Uh, on the other hand, there are some things that, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly, a, like I said, a dense and elliptical type of a show. And uh, at times it, it really bears repeated watching. I don't know how people watched this show in the 1960s without the benefit of repeated viewing and VCRs or DVRs and, and the ability to uh, really break it down and, and then listen to podcasts or, or uh, read internet discussions. Uh, and don't, and don't forget back and watch it once and then it's, it's, it's in and it's gone. You may never see it again for the rest of your yeah. life. I was uh, going to just say, don't forget about black and white TVs as well. Right, right. Uh, my family didn't have a color TV until sometime in the late 70s. <laughs> so I definitely know what that's like. So, uh, But I would give this one uh, seven double agent cats out of ten. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Um, Bob? Yeah, I like the same things that most of the others have liked so far. I like number two. I like the courtroom scene. Uh, but I didn't think a lot happened in the episode. Um, I'll give it seven out of ten termination orders. Um, I, I thought the escape attempt was kind of perfunctory. You know, nothing really happened there. I thought sentencing him to death, you know, this early on for this offense was kind of a little silly. Mm. Um, so I didn't think an awful lot happened you know, kind of in the overall scheme of the series. But there were individual things that I liked a lot in the episode. Yeah. Um, not, so no, you go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm not sure if, if it was if it was played up for the court scene just to try to get to six, because now I'm completely cynical about everything that happens in the show. Um, <laughs> but, but the fact that his, his observer kind of kind of has, you know, that, that bit of an outbreak about, no, don't kill him bit, you know, try and stay it. I don't know if that's, if it was either six is actually having an effect on the people that get close to him, or if that was just played up for six, I'm just, I, I, I pull up the episode and I kind of flip through it to timestamp. So that was something that came to my, I stopped on that. I realized that I forgot to mention earlier. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, there'll be other similar circumstances in the future. So you can see how others react in the same kind of situation. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for the Bob. You just saved my bacon a little bit here. Um, because I'm not a big fan of this episode. 
for all the reasons that you've just mentioned. There isn't much happening in this episode. His escape attempt seemed a bit wishy-washy. Uh, the only thing which I find uh, good in this episode is Mary Morris number two. Having a strong uh, central female character. Highly unusual in, um, in uh, 1960s. Still quite kind of unusual today as well, as a matter of fact. Um, so I'm going to have to give this uh, four out of ten. And happy villagers. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about female characters. I mean, even at the time in a sort of similar series, Star Trek couldn't have a female second in command. Mm. Definitely not. Definitely not. I was watching a um, a documentary actually, literally just before we started recording this episode about um, the interracial kiss between O'Hara and Kirk, and how it, that how I, that actually got banned in a few southern states in America. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So um, next time out, we'll be reco- um, in a fortnight's time. We will be recording our next episode, and this is going to be entitled "Free for All." Aaron and Harold, as you are the newbies, uh, what do you think "Free for All" is going to mean? Perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, something goes down with the uh, oversight, and uh, all the villagers get a chance to uh, do what they want. I was, I, w- I would either agree with that, or there's there's a a mandatory free day in the village that people are allowed to to do what they will within reason. Um, and so I I would go with either you know that the either surveillance goes down as already suggested, or that there's a, a, a free day, put free in quotations there, if you will, um, for, for the villagers and, and that everyone is allowed to do what they wish for a day or at least for the period in the episode. Or maybe maps are free for everyone. Oh, yes. <laughs> you can finally get that bigger, colorful map that usually cost extra. Yeah. <laughs> I like the awesome. idea of surve- surveillance being down. Uh, Dollhouse did something like that where they're suddenly able to leave and, you know, just seeing how that played out. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent, excellent. We've got a, a bit of feedback uh, before we leave you this week. Do you want me to read it or do you want yeah, to? Yeah, if, if, if you read the Facebook, I'll read the email. Sure. Uh, we have Facebook, and this will answer some of the questions that Harold had earlier. Uh, we have Facebook feedback from Sergeant Drano. Okay, here you go. In this episode, number six gets his suit back, even though they previously said it had been burnt. Thoughts on this? Speaking of the suit, going back a bit to Arrival, that bald dude at the hospital spouting gibberish, it looked to me like he was wearing number six's suit right after they told him his clothes had been burnt. Was he? Was that intended? For some reason, I got the feeling that maybe that bald dude, the bald guy was the dude that Rover got at the pool. And now he was bonkers looking at a tiny rover suspended on a stream of water in front of him. Thoughts? I'd like to hear some speculation from the noobs on some of the basic mysteries at this point. Why do they think number six resigned? Which side runs the village? I remember the first time I watched Dance of the Dead, I didn't like it. It was the only Prisoner episode I didn't like. For some reason, it made me uncomfortable watching it. Possibly because number six really seems off his game in this episode. In subsequent viewings, I really grew to like this episode, though, 
Got a good creep factor. Thoughts on the message number six hears on the radio? How about the dead guy number six finds on the beach? The town crier in this episode also played on Babylon 5. He's been in a crap ton of stuff. I like the black cat. You might see it again. And then from Glennis Seifers, the message on the radio is a World War II message to resistance fighters in Europe, but it's used here as a touch typing lesson. The body on the beach was just the body washed up. The town crier, Aubrey Morris, was a very good friend of Patrick McGowan's. Uh, a few interesting points um, from Sergeant Rayner there. Um, so, why do you think number six was signed? Uh, I think oh, there was there was some comment about it in the first one. He makes some comment about people change, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. He made you know I think either you know his he either had some sort of uh, I'm I'm gonna guess uh, you know either either his opinion on something differed or he had you know either a moral or some something uh, disagreement about something he was assigned to do or something he had done or he found out something that the agency he was working for was doing that he didn't approve of or agree with, you know, and initially he, you know, either he changed or something within the agency or who he worked for changed that he no longer agreed with. That's, that's my, my guess, uh, based on that little, that little line, you know, people change. Cause he was, he was asked that if I remember in episode, in the first episode we watched, you know, why, why he left, you know, his, his immediate reply was people change. And in this one, when he has that conversation with Dutton, uh, I think I, I think maybe I'm thinking of the other uh, episode, but I think Dutton uh, expressed some surprise that he was here on this island, and there was some conversation about people change. So Brad, I, I tend to agree it was some sort of uh, element of conscious, uh, you know, conscience uh, where he, he has a disagreement about what's going on. And again, this was the 1960s when we know uh, spy agencies were doing all sorts of uh, devious things, trying to uh, kill, uh, poison, and whatever, all, all sorts of things in a desperate fight over the Cold War, which in retrospect often looks rather, uh, you know, uh, immoral. And, what, sorry, do you think runs the village? Uh, well, as I, I said before, I don't think it's uh, Six's agency, be, just be, based on that uh, interrogation of Dudden, what we know of, of Dudden, if, if they... Uh, we're from that same agency, and I'm assuming that Dudden is from the, also from the same agency, based upon what what we uh, heard in their conversation. Uh, and and Dudden is described as someone who's uh, uh, fairly low on the totem pole, doesn't have that much information. Why would they have him there? Uh, why would they be dissatisfied with what they got out of him? Why would they be trying to get more? out of him. It, it just doesn't make a lot of sense that it would be Six's own agency would be doing that. So I have to think it's it's someone else and, and if it's from if they have people at the on that island from both sides of the Iron Curtain, it may be a, a third party. Yeah, I, I kinda believe it's a third third party, not necessarily involved either with, you know, Six's agency or uh, an opposing agency, if you will. I just kind of think it's you know someone someone who likes to gather information an agency who maybe acts as a third party and sells information to maybe the highest bidder of some sort and maybe I'm just going way out on a limb here by guessing this. <laughs> and one last question: Who is number one? 
I like the teleprompt, uh, the, the teleprompt answer we had earlier. I like okay. We, we go with that. Okay, we'll go with that. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, we also had one email this week from uh, Dan Wilson. Um, short and succinct. Worst dance party ever. No shag, frog, go-go's. Everyone seems so happy to be there. Yes, indeed. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, but thanks, uh, everyone, for their feedback. If you want to se- uh, send an email to us, we are at theprisonerintrocast at gmail.com. You can also uh, find our um, Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash prisonerintrocast. You can also find us on iTunes now. Indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. It may take a little bit of work, though. You can leave well, a review. I, I left one. I think I was the first one. So actually, okay. it's my job. reviews. Thank you, Harold. Yeah, in iTunes, searching for in the village or even searching for prisoner will work. Yeah, uh, it it does take a few days for the actual iTunes store to catch up with iTunes itself. So if you just search for that, you should be able to find it there, which is great. And I also want to personally thank uh, Nutty, who did our show artwork for us as well. Yes, thank you. Uh, very, very kind. It's nice to have somebody with actual artistic talent as opposed to saying <laughs> me. <laughs> indeed. In, indeed. All I can draw is two stick man, but that's it. Um, and always, I also want to thank many thanks to uh, Do Not Forsake Me and My Darling for letting us use that uh, music as our opening theme. It's, or it's, it's um, very, very kind of you. Anyway, uh, and if, and if anyone else has got any anyone else has got anything else to say? Uh, do you want to mention our other podcast? Oh, true. That, that is very very true. You can you can find me on the Red Dwarf Intercast, uh, where we have gone through every single episode of Red Dwarf and all the books now, and we're just about to finish off next month. Um, but you can find all of them on iTunes. Just just search for um, Red Dwarf Intercast. And also, I'm on the um, uh, the Oh No You Didn't podcast, which reviews really, really bad episodes of and films of sci-fi and fantasy. So, yeah, we're on Podbean, so just a, a search Podbean for Oh No You Didn't. Bob? And I'm on Clone Dance Party, which is an intro cast for the BBC America series Orphan Black. Um Almost nobody has seen Orphan Black, but it's a really good show. It's about clones. It's set in present-day Toronto. And there's enough people being chased in paranoia that I think prisoner fans would really enjoy Orphan Black. It's an awesome show. It's a great podcast. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll be back in two weeks uh, reviewing Free For All. So say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having me. Nothing else. seeing you. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha